Welcome to Fill to Flourish with Luke and Lauren, where emotional health takes a stage and your story matters. Welcome back, everybody. We are here today with uh, some friends and colleagues to talk about a very significant topic, um, racism. Uh, these are two friends of mine. Uh, they're mental health practitioners. Start off just sharing a little bit about them, uh, introducing them. Uh, first, Heather. She's a Korean-American born in South Korea, and her family immigrated to the States when she was two and grew up in Southern California. Uh, like I said, she's a mental health practitioner. Uh, she works with me, and uh, she's been a mental health practitioner for 15 years. So she's a veteran. And um, a little interesting fact is she's grieving the end of the NBA. It's over. No more NBA to watch. That is sad. I grieve it too. And our, my other colleague is Sarah. She, was, she is a Korean American and born in Southern California, but grew up in Northern Jersey. Uh, she grew up as a pastor's kid. She's also a, health, a mental health practitioner. Uh, for the past about six years and before that she worked in the legal field so she did a little bit of a career change and so we are so thankful for heather and sarah for joining us today and just the, your uh, willingness to talk about a difficult topic uh, a topic that me and lauren have been learning about in the last several years but are still learning so just thank you for your uh, vulnerability and graciousness to to join us today and talk uh, just hear your guys' story. And so thank you for that. So yeah, I just want to jump in and say, um, we've been wanting to bring some friends on to the podcast to share uh, about race, about all of these topics that are kind of off the the core topic of race. And it just felt, felt like we've really wanted to, but also felt like, wow, this is a big ask. And we want to trust our audience to to tend to this with care. And so we just ask you to, just like you would in a conversation with a person you're with, to honor what you're hearing. And even if what you're hearing is, is new or is different than your perceptions of things, um, be willing to just lay that down for a time and be willing to hear out other image bearers and their story because we all carry such different stories in our bodies and our journey. And it's a privilege to be able to hear each other's story. So we know that this will be really meaningful for you and we're, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're listening. And yeah, let's say hi to Heather and Sarah. Hi guys. Hey. <laughs> Thanks for having us in yes. your space. Yeah. Yes. We're actually in the same room together. So this is the first time we've had guests and be all together. So we're kind of little bit on top of each other, but it's all right. We're, we're good. <laughs> we're all friends. <laughs> we have okay. the AC on. <laughs> There's good air movement. Yeah. So I think the first question that I want to ask is, can you describe a little bit to us what it's like to not be in the majority as as a kid, teen, adult, whichever you want to help us understand better what it's like to not be, uh, I guess, to be a minority? It's a big question, but... Yeah. 
answer as much as you can. Yeah. So I predominantly grew up in a Jewish community, majority white, uh, and surrounded by majority white towns. Um, I didn't realize that I was different until I got to North Jersey, actually. Mm. Um, yeah, because in SoCal, mm-hmm. I was surrounded by more diversity, so I had mm-hmm. no idea. Uh, and then I got to North Jersey, and woo, I was told I was different, that's for sure. <laughs> when did you move to North Jersey? How old were you? I was nine. Okay. Um, so most of my life was in North Jersey, but it wasn't... So in my Jewish town, I didn't really feel so different just because there was a decent amount of other minority groups, even though it was predominantly white, but also, you know, the Jewish community is a minority. So it Mm -hmm. didn't stand out that much. But when I was on the volleyball team for my school and I got to travel to other white towns, that's when, oh, your team is different because you got all these Chinese people. And, um, yeah, we, we, uh, endured racism as a team and that's when I knew, okay, we don't belong. Um, and then randomly, you know, we'd have people speaking Asian languages to you mm-hmm. with, with, you're like, well, I don't understand what you're saying. Cause that's not my language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we did, you know, you felt like you stuck out, uh, but also coming from Northeast, you're kind of solid in who you are. You know what I mean? We, we got strong personalities. Yes. So it's kind of like the culture is like you do you uh, and I do me. We don't cross paths and we're fine. I mean, other other Northeast people can disagree with my, my thought in terms of the culture. but No, I agree. And we were in upstate New York and I still feel like that was a definite part of culture. Okay. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So in that way, there was peace on the surface, Mm. Mm. you know, because you didn't really mix. Um, And that became more predominant as we got older. I I remember in particular one older friend I had when I became a freshman in my high school. He straight up came up to me and said, hey, you know, you're going to lose all your white friends and you're only going to be friends with Asians. I was like, what? (laughs) I didn't understand. But that happens yeah. because yeah. you you gather with people that get you. But I think being a part of the volleyball team really helped in terms of me being surrounded by more diversity. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you so much, Sarah. That is so interesting how depending on, on your city, mm-hmm. not only depending on your, your race, depending on your, your city, who's in your city, even if they're they're white, if they're part of an ethnic minority, a, mm-hmm. I guess religious minority, ethnic, like that, that still was a buffer of mm-hmm. a little bit of safety, mm-hmm. but almost a false protection too, mm-hmm. because that gives you an ex- experience of oh I belong, and then all of a sudden when it was with white majority, yeah, the message was no you you don't. Mm-hmm. You're different, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll let you know how different. Mm-hmm. So painful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Sarah already kind of echoed the dynamic in Southern California. It is quite diverse. Um, so 
I don't, I primarily grew up in like Latino and like black communities. So I'm a different minority mm-hmm. in minority communities, right? My culture shock right now is that this is the first time I've ever been in white dominant spaces. So that's derailing for me in like my adulthood. It's very different. Um, so living in Thailand is your first time yeah, experiencing being, <laughs> being a, yes. in a white majority culture. Yeah, yeah. Can, yeah. You, can you explain why that is just for listeners who don't know all about the well and the expectations? Yes, here? yes, <laughs> yes. I think there is a reality where um, you know folks who commit to, to go on uh, overseas like uh, commitments, uh, they, they tend to look um, more so on a certain privilege scale, right? So it's m- mostly your white-facing Americans or North Americans, Europeans, and then you got, you know, we'll probably talk about colorism, but you you got the more fair-skinned, privileged, like, Asians, like Koreans, like myself. And again, not to create a monolith, because you're hopefully, you know, that's what you'll hear between Sarah and myself as being Korean-Americans. We nonetheless still have different experiences, right? Yeah. So um, that there's integrity to, like, everyone's story, mm-hmm. and it still matters. So that's kind of like, ooh, the culture shock for me is that I've always been um, in these uh, diversified spaces, but also being exposed of the fact that you always held privilege in those spaces too. So that was really exposing for me to be like, yeah, that was the convenience, right? You didn't have to think about diversity per se because you don't have to assert privilege, that, that, that's the thing. You don't have to think about it. That's not a reminder. So hence, you're a privileged holder that I had the convenience to not have to think about that, right? Mm. So it's, it's great for me because it exposes what I've always been able to have and what does that privilege look like. And so there is, I think a lot of Asian Americans do hold this tension, again, depending where you are on the colorism scale, yeah. one foot in privilege and one foot in oppression, mm-hmm. right? I would say race got introduced to me through my family. So my mom, um, and, and you're talking about L.A., right? So there's a lot of tensions between black and Korean communities because of um, land and, like, property. So you got the immigrant story of folks, Koreans coming over, um, establishing businesses within black or Latino communities who've existed there for decades. Um, and they're kind of like what, how are you able to be in here? Because, you know, Korean business owners can't be in affluent white communities, right? So you can move into LA downtown or Watts, right? The, or Boyle Heights, these like black or Latino communities and be able to have like property that you're able to rent and lease and afford that. Mm -hmm. They can't go into Orange County where it's predominantly affluent white community and have like folks be willing to uh, sign, have them sign out on a lease to, to start up their businesses. So there is a lot of tension and strife um, in, in the undercurrent in, in a lot of places, I think, nationwide between yeah. like groups. Um, so there's always that tension. I think you'll hear a lot of intersectionality about Asian Americans dealing with the assimilation into whiteness along with anti-blackness and internalized racism. So the, you kind of have like an interfacing of those kind of any combination of that like happening to you. So I got introduced to race because my mom 
didn't like the fact that my best friend in third grade was a black girl. And so she had my uncle, my aunt, who was at that time married to a, um, a Caucasian gentleman, sit me down to talk to me, say, like, you can't be friends with this. You can't be friends with her anymore. And, you know, we're, we're kids, right? Like, so so this, is, this is why we say it's learned, yes. right? Because for me, my best friend is my best friend. I'm aware that um, my skin color is a certain way, but there's no attachments to it, right? Like my black best friend is just left. There's no attachments to it. She's my best friend, right? So at that point, you learn, oh, that means something. There's some kind of value to it, you're telling me? So hence, I can't, and she's a threat because you can't be friends with her, right? So I think that was like the journey of, yeah, right. Race got introduced to me that there's value to like wait a minute to people's skin color. So you told me that you're 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 teaching me that at that point in time, and then but I mean I think by the grace of God, I mean there's pros and cons to this right that I didn't ascribe to it. I was like that still doesn't feel right. So but that led me on a journey of like internalized racism, and I'm like I I for like decades I'm just. Uh, the, the sense of against my own people, especially my family and like Koreans. I'm like, you guys are such elitists and just this rejection of myself, right? Mm. I guess like the other story for, for us, like my heart, we, we especially know about like injuries when it comes to like our food. So a lot of us have this story about like taking our lunches to school, mm. even though it was in predominantly like diversified communities, the few like white kids that were around, or, or even the other minority groups, right? They, oh, you know, you know that stinks. You know, it's kimchi and all this stuff, right? So there's, I think, um, there, there's a lot of, like, food injury that we don't really, like, and trauma that's, like, not really spoken about. Because in my community in Belfort, I saw, like, kimchi sold at Trader Joe's. <laughs> and then they had a... At the new burger spot, they had, um, like, a kimchi aioli, right? So it's, like, mainstream right now, and, like, I love it. Yeah. But it brought out rage in me because I'm, like, you, the society said no. Yeah. This sucks. You guys are disgusting. This is not acceptable. But now you want to say that it's okay and it's cool, right? So there's, I think, people don't think, that they don't liken too much weight to like the food but there's so much about like food like and food food is so like paramount to culture you know and so and how i think that's one thing that white people don't understand is how much food is a part of culture yeah because we don't have like i'm a north from the northeast white i have i don't have food Mm i i eat what i eat and there's nothing connected to that except for flavor and what I want and what to put on my table. So it's not connected to my culture, whereas like, kimchi is connected to family, culture, history. Mm-hmm. And if that's denied or rejected or mocked, then what does that say about yeah. me? Yeah. So that's an interesting point that you bring up. That's, I don't think as white people we have any idea yeah. what, why you say like there's like trauma or... Um, what was the word you said? A food, food injury. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, that's actually the first time. I mean, I've heard, like, oh, I, I brought food here and it was not accepted. But I've never heard of that statement mm-hmm. of, like, food injury. That's so yeah. true, though. Yeah. The, the, the pain that, like, <laughs> I just think lunchtime. 
mm-hmm. as a white guy, lunchtime was un- uncomfortable because do I fit in? Am I going to be accepted? Can I sit with somebody? Or am I going to be alone? So that was hard. But on top of that, of being having another dynamic playing mm-hmm. against you, as a, as kids and teenagers, that's just like another dynamic of of challenge. Yeah. Of yeah. of trying to fit in. Like teenagers want to know: Are they accepted? Kids yeah. want to know: Am I accepted? And and trying to find all those different ways of finding that uh, finding those and something that white majority don't have to think about is yeah the small and not so small nuances of man- maneuvering through yeah through culture yeah uh, so i'm jumping in here real quick uh after the podcast and listening to it realizing that i misspoke i wanted to uh, correct myself and clarify that the reason why I didn't experience any conflict or pushback with my food is not because there wasn't any culture connected to it, but because white culture was connected to it. And as a white man, I didn't have to face any cultural conflict because my food was connected to the the majority culture of being a white person. So I, I just want to jump in here real quick and just correct myself as I misspoke in the episode. All right, thanks. Back to the episode. Yeah. You mentioned like your mom teaching you something about uh-huh. racism. Yes. And it's something that I think we have to also acknowledge is like that was an explicit teaching. Yeah. How many times did implicitly did she teach you that same lesson? Yeah. And this is probably where we have to do a lot more like mental gymnastics to think because mm-hmm. it happens a lot but we're like oh we went through that <laughs> yeah well that was happening to us that was implicit or explicit racism with my mom i would say just like in her slighted ways okay so when we lived in san francisco i think this is still explicit but i remember being at like a blockbuster and block when we, when the blockbusters were still around yes i'm aging myself clearly um <laughs> That's where you went to rent videos yes. in a store yes. and you brought them back Sorry, to your house. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. You listen. had this laminated card and they scanned it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a Netflix yeah, when yeah, a yeah, store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It has a Dropbox. For, it's a little, for our younger listeners. Yeah, for our younger listeners <laughs> all over the world. Um, so, and I distinctly remember this is in San Francisco in the city. And there was a black gentleman on the corner minding his own business. Wasn't even looking towards my way, no nothing. And my mom's just like, motioning like hurry up Mm. and i'm like what do you mean initially right i don't know why she's doing that and then i see the black gentleman on the corner now i'm just kind of an asshole sometimes to my mom just just to stick it to them so i i I was just like lingering walking closer to him and she you just i just saw her panic yeah right like get in the car get your ass in the car kind of a thing but like these, right? Like you, you. I hear it from my like my um, my black friends, you know, my especially like my ma- black male friends. Like yeah, the whole clutch purse thing, right? Like them walking to the other side of the road. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom did a lot of that. Um, a lot of our immigrant parents were like very much affected by the media, yeah. right? Like this is how they are. My mom was like impacted by what was seen by the Korean news. <laughs> And what happened in K-Town? And yet another business holder got held up by this black man, right? By this Mexican man, you know? So you're they're absorbing and internalizing all of this 
in my adulthood now, I'm like, okay, I get it. A lot of it is your survival mechanism, right? Their assimilation or the things that they do is their survival mechanism. I mean, I, in my adulthood, I'm not responsible to like create separation from that, right? Um, not to give it as, as an excuse, but right. yeah, she did a lot, like just the slighted talk mm-hmm. in the house or my cousin, and then you want to talk about within the Asian community, like when my cousin started to, you know, date a Vietnamese girl, right? Again, on the color spectrum, they're, they're darker yeah. Asians and the perception of less than. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of just whispers of talks about her in the background. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, just like, oh, do you see, like her features yeah. and everything, a lot of it is about like physical features. Like, do you see her nose? It's mm-hmm. like a little bit too big, you know? And again, ascribing to the standards of Westernized, like beauty, yeah. right? So, and so that would be kind of like the implicit. It's explicitly saying, but it's not like, oh, she's bad because of this. It's, yeah, she's not quite white. Yes, she's not light enough. She's not American enough. Or what does she look like that? Yeah. Or why are her eyes like that? It's like okay. Yeah. I can. I get what you're saying. Yeah. And I think that's really important, as for like our white listeners, to. N- to decipher the explicit racism and implicit racism mm-hmm. and how we teach it. Like you mentioned media, you mentioned comments, like something I've been noticing over the, our, our journey of recognizing our own racism is how like uh, humor is a, like the greatest way to be racist mm-hmm. and not look like a racist. Yeah. And because it's either you can play it off as joking mm-hmm. or it's humor. So you're laughing. So it's fun. And it, like a sneaky way of maneuvering into the conversation to uh, affect how people think, speak and interact. And sometimes it's implicit of like, oh, I don't go to that part of the town or, mm-hmm. oh, you're going to there. Why would you go there? Yeah. yeah. Or just those kind of comments that we that we make that we don't pay attention to and it it is giving messages. Mm -hmm. And I think I would just echo like with parenting and how humans work, how children develop. It's not the sitting down and reading a textbook with your kid that your kid learns what's right and true about Mm -hmm. the world. That is like 1%. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's all those little tiny interactions that could literally carry the weight of an entire belief. Like the little Heather at the Blockbuster and the look of terror on her mom's face about this random black man doing nothing, Mm -hmm. that communicated five volumes to you about safety and who's okay and who's not okay, who's accepted and who's not, who we're better than and who we're... Like, it's just, I think there's so much... um, that parents think right now, like, I would never say to my kids, oh, you know, that any certain group is better or less than the other. That's rarely, I think, I shouldn't even say rarely, I don't think that's the main way that racist ideas are being passed on in this, in in the 21st century. I think now it's more common to be those things like you had mentioned, Heather, that communicate a lot, but not necessarily explicitly. And so the mom with the little second grader isn't going to say, oh, honey, the the minority kids in your class, um, you can't be friends with them because maybe they're not safe or whatever, you know, word she puts in there. She She's not going to say that. 
But when she goes to hand out the invitations for the little second grader's eighth birthday, who's getting the invitations for that party? And so I think that we as kids and our kids now learn through the little small interactions and engagements throughout the day, throughout our our lives with what our parents are communicating uh, implicitly. I think that's the primary way. Um, and this is why it's confusing to people to be like, no, my parents weren't racist. Like they never said anything, you know, derogatory or blah, blah, blah. But if you understand how humans work and sociology and psychology, you realize, oh, that's actually not how beliefs are passed. <laughs> that's only one, you know, one way. And so, um, why don't we go to the concept that a lot of us might be familiar with of just how Asian Americans are often seen as the the model minority and what that puts on them and yeah just how tricky that is so my parents had my brother and I really focus on assimilation so we weren't told to really stick out meaning um you know for for lunch we didn't take our korean lunches we we just took bologna sandwiches um or we were signed up for lunch meals at our school um so we didn't stick out on that way but i also think that growing up where i grew up we had a lot of ethnic foods that it wasn't really seen as ethnic foods you know so you just you just ate food and it mm-hmm. we just it we knew it was food like yeah bagels, you know, cream cheese and lox. Like that was delicious. <laughs> We're not dull. Mm. You know, it's it's a Jewish thing or yeah. yeah. You know, um sauerkraut. I didn't know that was foreign. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. just until recently actually. Yeah. Yeah. So I think in that way uh, I'm grateful for the way I grew up in terms of I was surrounded by mm. a lot of different foods. And uh the model minority thing that pisses me off because (laughs) yes i'm not i don't fit the stereotypes of an asian so i think the model minority brought up tension within other asians Mm -hmm. like i had other korean americans say hey why aren't you good at math you're korean i'm like bro Uh, not all Asians are good at math. Sir, not both testimonies. Yeah. <laughs> not good. 2,100 hours. Oh, minus 12. Yeah. I'm so, yeah. 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 Or even just, you know, um, oh, why don't, what's wrong with your hair? Mm-hmm. It's not straight. You got to get it straightened. I would go to hair salons and yeah. be like, you got to straighten your hair. And I'm like, uh, no, I like my waves. Yeah. I'm mm-hmm. good. But I would have to get into conversations with hair salon personnel who's trying to convince me yeah. to straighten my hair yes. um, because that's the sign of beauty. Mm-hmm. You know, it's Western beauty. So just, I mean, I did have a period of time when I, I did straighten my hair just because that's what I was told to do. Mm-hmm. And I was actually forced to wear heels. <laughs> I didn't realize Jeez. this until later on. That my mom discouraged me from getting sneakers and flats, unless it was only for volleyball sneakers. But the shoes that I wore to school every day, they were heels. Reason being, because I'm short. In that way, I fit the Asian stereotype. I'm short. My mom's like, no, 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 we got to be tall. 
you know, because everybody else is tall. So I, I, girl, I can run in pumps. <laughs> That's a game from that. This is survival mechanism you learned. I can run in pumps. Yeah. That's but, amazing. <laughs> but yeah, those are, you know, this model minority thing. Like I was forced to, I was forced to assimilate, but then there was a lot of, you know, Korean mm-hmm. pride and that. like I had to be both. Yes. Mm. I had to be both. Like, wow. to my parents, I'm like, no, you're Korean first, but when you're out there, you got to fit yeah. in. Yeah. Um, and the, for for me, it was more of like, you are a representation of other Korean Americans. Yes. Hence, you got to do well. You got to do well in school because they're looking at you to be a representation mm-hmm. of Korean Americans. You know, or other Asian Americans. Mm-hmm. You gotta, you gotta be talented. I'm like, well, I, I didn't do well in school. <laughs> right. Yeah. I didn't care too much about it. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I gotta be a good, obedient girl. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So much pressure. Additional pressure. Additional pressure to being human. Yeah. And I would say the other side of model minority is the usage, right? So Sarah talks about assimilative, like, factor. And then you got model minority constructed uh, with intention as a tool to create a wedge and continue the legacy of anti-blackness, right? So that's what it was. Because after World War II, like, it was a PR kind of uh, gig on the, on, on the Americas, uh, I should say just North America, not the Americas, where, you know, the, the Japanese uh, Americans coming out of the internment camps and they're granting them access into, like, housing, right? That, that all of Latinos and Black Americans were all denied who were here far, far before, um, to say, like, well, look at how they can make it after coming through this kind of hardship. And they they pulled themselves up by the bootstraps, right? But it was handed to them. And so we it, they didn't know that, that it was, we don't know. A lot of us don't know. We don't come into this realization that it was an intended, created tool to to continue to oppress groups that America continues to want to see as oppressed and keep them oppressed, Right. So that's kind of like the side of model minority. Like, and that's a voice I, I heard in my family is, mm. is, yeah, the continuity of, again, I think a huge, a lot of it has to do with the proximity of the spaces you're in, mm-hmm. right? So I'm localized yeah. into spaces primarily like black and brown. So they're going to focus a little bit more on that rhetoric, um, and then, you know, they, they throw in the, the slightedness about the assimilative factors too. You got to be Korean, but don't, but also like the right way to assimilate into America is like the white, like be like the white people, oh, yeah. right? Look like them. You are subservient to them. Yeah. So if they are peoples of authority in your life, you listen to them. You don't talk back at them. You take direction from them. This is just how, this is their, but my mom to this day, like, America is still white people's country. This is still white, so, you know, you even see it in terms of, like, 
whom was she ever okay with me like possibly like marrying right it's like I could bring home a white dude I could bring home like maybe other even other Asian guys for definitely priorities Korean but if I'm gonna go outside of my ethnic race it's like white Chinese okay um but anything else it would it would have had it would have been a bloodbath Wow. In the family, for sure. Tons of questions. What does he do? Are you sure about this? What family does he come from? Right. There's a, the the questioning is nonstop. Yeah. Versus if I brought somebody who's Korean, there there's no. He's a good man. Yeah. There's no doubt of like this interrogation that needs no. to happen for them. But America is still seen as the white man country. Yeah. yeah. To this day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is a sad reality. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's couched between white supremacy and anti-blackness, right? And you cannot have... And I think that's the thing, is that part of the Asian-American narrative is, like, you have to include that. Like, those, those features are, are part of, like, understanding specific to the Asian-American kind of dynamic. Like, there's those features. It's like white supremacy has to be spoken about. Anti-blackness has to be spoken about. You know, you can't really um i don't feel like you can really thoroughly have this holistic picture about asian american again i'm gonna be very specific in a very broad kind of like you know arc um to 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 be devoid of those either side of those kind of philosophies or or values so anti-black is Asian Americans' way of assimilating because of white supremacy. White supremacy is anti-black. And if so if you want to assimilate into America, then you also have to be anti-black. Is that what I'm hearing you say? I don't think to that extreme. Maybe, yeah, maybe not so mm-hmm. concretely, mm-hmm. but there is there's a, an influence. Is there an influence of becoming, of being the right modeled asian american is so i I think i think that's actually a global a global thing in that for some reason the darker you are in whatever country that so colorism you know the darker you are the harder your fight right you know so that's why you know in terms of america still being white man country yeah i think it's a global global issue for some reason, every country thinks that white is superior, and uh, beauty is is you know you got to be white. You got to have white features. You got to have white skin. Mm-hmm. The double eyelid. The double eyelid. You know. Yeah. The different color eyes. The the very nose specific bridge. high nose. Yeah. You know. I think globally is kind of anti-black. I'm kind of picturing, so correct this analogy if it's not quite right, but I'm kind of picturing like the cool girl in the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so here's the white person. Yeah. The one who's the most popular in the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then there's the other girls who aren't quite, you know, they're in different tiers. But the other girl can come in, a.k.a. the Asian American, and if she stands next to the cool girl, 
she gets to be cool like her. It's different. She'll never be like her totally, but she gets to be like one tier down from her. If she ascribes to the rules that this cool girl has of she gets to bully and tease the rest of the girls who aren't in the in crowd. So it's like this unwritten contract of like, if I, I get to align with you and get some of those privileges, maybe by association, but I have to hate who you hate. So what do you think about that analogy? That's a better way of what I was just trying to say mm-hmm. is sounds like Asian Americans have to align with white supremacy and be anti-black in order to be model citizen or be accepted as the cool kid. Right. In, in or, analogy. Into, yeah, or ascribing. It says like you're ascribing into whiteness, right? You're right. like kind of doing whiteness right, right? I mean, exactly. it's so I mean, like you... When you have, I mean, the word in and of itself, supremacy, is to say that I am better than. It is this elitism. So there has to be an opposite tension that happens, right? Like, of a, well, if you're better than, there has got these, there has to be a less than, right? It's not like you better than and just stays at a better better than. I think, like, philosophically, you need, Mm. the better better than-ness happens in the othering of people who are not. Right. Right? It has to exist. Like, that. I think that's just kind of the physics of how it works, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, yeah, I think it demands it. I think it, in order to assimilate yourself into, uh, like, features of white supremacy or aligning yourself to, 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 to whiteness, which is, a, like Sarah's alluding to, it's a global phenomenon, mm-hmm. yeah. right? I mean, it's crazy what we've all seen whether it's in thailand or what i saw in, it like just on a pure bit like the amount of like skin bleaching items yeah. it's insane i couldn't believe how much of that exists all over all over the world and it's and it's a generalized phenomenon and that you can get at any local store that's in your soap lotion yeah and and everything yeah it's hard not to find it yeah find something without bleach in it Mm -hmm. yeah i remember the boys had a a party over at a cafe like on a river here and um they had a bunch of friends with them and uh, this thai lady came up to me and she was selling snacks and so i bought a few and was, was having a conversation with her and in thai and um you know, struggling with that, trying to understand what she was saying. And she pointed out one of the one of the kids in the group who happened to be black, little boy. And she looked at me and said, I feel so bad for him. And I was like, Oh, what what's wrong? Mm -hmm. And she was like, I I feel and she was an older generation. Mm -hmm. So she was explicitly saying what some people implicitly feel Mm -hmm. to my face. And I was just like, what is happening here? And I was so flustered. My face turned red and I was just like, I don't even know what I said, honestly, but I refuted what she said and was just like, no, he's wonderful. Like this is, that's not okay. And um, just that that idea of anti-blackness. And I think colorism is such a helpful concept for people who don't understand well, what do you mean? Like, even within different ethnic groups, there's like a tier. Like, it's so helpful to understand yeah. that, what would it even be called? That belief system, the way it is structured. Yeah. Because 
these things are so nuanced and, and to understand people and to love people well, to understand our, understand ourselves and our cultures well, we have to deep dive. Yeah. We have to do the work to understand it. Yeah. And you guys as Asian Americans, you just had like a fast track to all of this because you were born into being a minority in a in a culture of, of white supremacy and yet being in that weird middle place of like a bit more acceptable. It's just, it's so like, it, it's like a mind yeah. word that yeah. I can't say on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I thought it. Yeah, <laughs> we said you. it. We said it out loud for you. Thank yeah, you. yeah. Because if I even think about, and I'm sure you know, Sarah could speak to this too. Like my, so my friends who are Korean American, and the rate of how they've been pulled over by the police officers versus like yeah. my friends who are uh, uh, Pinoy American, Filipino, um, Hmong, Cambodian. Right mm-hmm. again, color, color spectrum. spectrum. They're your darker Asians, right? Yeah. So in Southern California, there's a, a city called Long Beach. It's a huge Cambodian population. Mm-hmm. Cambodia and then like Samoan Pacific Islander. Rate of police brutality mirrors that of what black Americans experience, mm-hmm. right? Still more, more so on the side of black Americans experience. Like, I mean, the, the, the proportion is still higher for them. Yeah. But it is like really close, Right. People don't, because model minorities, they see people like me and Sarah, probably. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or, or the ones that are, like, going to Harvard, and they all go to Berkeley and Princeton and your Yales and score, I don't know how many points is on the SET anymore. 2,400. It's 2,400 now. Yeah. Man, really dating myself. <laughs> Unless they changed it. I yeah, know. I have like, no idea. I thought 1600, so wow. Yeah, that's what I remember, 1600, okay. right? But like you don't, I mean, there is such an unseen group of Asian Americans. And I think I read a statistic, like some of the most uh, poor in New York are your senior citizen South uh, Southeast Asian, um, elder, yeah, elderly yeah. population, yeah. right? Like unseen, completely unseen, but they're you know, but the rhetoric in America, but the Asians are making it. They make the most money, yeah. and look at their wage gap. I was like, whoa, 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 again, not a monolith, yeah, right. But it's consistent. There's a consistent pattern, yeah, right. Where it's like, ooh, where the darker you are, yes. right. So you've got to talk about anti-blackness. You have to. I think I didn't realize colorism as much until I had my son. In that, um, I mean, so in my family, I'm really pale and I've, we've got darker, my younger brother's darker than I am. But so I kind of grew up always being praised for my fairer yeah. skin. Yeah. So even, you know, in comparison to my brother, but I never thought anything about it because it was actually just within my family. But then as I have my, my son who is darker than myself, um, and my husband, yep. I'm immediately more aware of, yeah. of oh, he's being treated differently. Yeah. People are questioning, oh, you guys are light. Why is he so dark? I'm mm-hmm. like, what? You know, from other yeah. Asian yeah. backgrounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's it's a global yeah. thing. The darker you are, the more, you know, oppression yeah. you face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is a sad reality. Yeah. And I'm like, how do I work with it yeah <laughs> how yeah. do i teach my son yeah. no your skin is beautiful yeah you know 
and not to get jaded. Yeah. You know, how, how not, because I spent a period of my time, my life being really racist towards white people. Mm -hmm. I hated white people for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't want my son to necessarily go through that. Yep. Yep. So it's kind of like, how do I navigate that, you know, yeah, you, you've got darker skin you're going to deal with these things and let, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. It's, I don't know. What do you think, just from a mental health perspective, as you guys are both counselors and work with a variety of people, I'm, I'm wondering what this does to a person's psyche, mental health, identity of self, any of those things. When you you don't get to fit this perfect little category, like what is this lack of full acceptance, full appreciation of your full self? What does it do mm-hmm. mentally to people? How what are the impacts of it? I mean, just in a in a, in a general again, if we can do a general arc mm-hmm. of uh, racial like race trauma, I heard. A talk between like Brene Brown and Austin Channing Brown, her last name, um, and how uh, they talked about for Black Americans, it's like they have live wires constantly mm-hmm. in their body. Yeah, that's their experience. It's just a live. It's a charged wire that can never go to sleep. There's no rest, mm-hmm. right? So this like, uh, you, there's no room for rest. Mm-hmm. They're they're constantly in a state of. Like black Americans are in a constant state of restlessness and weariness and tiredness, right? Mm-hmm. So like you you're just on. Everything about mm-hmm. you is constantly on. Your body's on, your mind's on, your brain, everything's just on. So I would say like that's as a mental health practitioner to be aware of that. I think I don't we have to again if I'm again speaking from a mental health perspective as a practitioner, I got to be aware of the culture and the racial implications of the individual that's sitting across from me. Yep. Right. And even the dynamics, because yeah. I'm not going to assume that that just because I'm a therapist, mm-hmm. that I'm safe for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Because mm-hmm. that's just a label. Mm-hmm. You don't know me. You don't know my cultural competency. Yes. You don't know if I'm a racist. <laughs> Right, you don't know my cultural biases or right my my history of uh, certain people groups of how I perceive them in my story. Yeah. So I never, as a practitioner, want to assume I am somebody safe for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I and not even as a practitioner, like even in my life as as a as a friend, mm-hmm. right? Like who holds privilege to the counter my other like black or brown friend counterparts. Like, I want them to know, I don't want you to think that I assume that I'm a safe person for you. Yeah. Because I don't know what I've carried, right? Because of my privilege, I have abilities. I have the convenience Mm -hmm. and the privilege to be mindless about many things, right? So I don't want to assume just safety. I think those are one of the things that we got to... I'm I'm really trying to be conscientious about, and, and I hope people could be conscientious about. Be helpful to know, like, just don't assume, per se, you're safe. Mm-hmm. Let that individual across from you mm-hmm. determine that for themselves, mm-hmm. and they'll let you know. They'll let you know. Maybe <laughs> if they ever 
Yeah, right. If, if that ever happens, if right? Ever, if safety ever happens, sure, they'll let you absolutely. know. Absolutely, right, right. But at the same time, they won't necessarily tell you that you're safe, or yeah. they won't tell you that you're not safe. Yeah. So many people of color have learned to live in a white world to say what they're supposed to say, do what they're supposed to do, engage the way they're supposed to engage according to a white culture. So they're not going to, it'll be unlikely for them to say like, no, no, I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. You aren't safe for me. Or like, they're going to engage with you because that's what they're supposed yeah. to do. Yeah. So for any white people out there who have some people of color that live next to them or work with them or quote unquote friends with them, like that doesn't mean they see you as safe. Yeah. That means they've learned how to live in a white world really well. Yeah. And so never to, I encourage people never to take that for granted or take it to assume that they're a safe person or that somebody else thinks that they're safe just because they're talking to them. Yeah. It reminds me of the question I asked you a few days ago about people, uh, colors of clients of color, sorry, that you've had and how deep they've gone with you about racial trauma and all of that and you were like not deep at all hmm. and i'm like hmm. that's so heartbreaking to me because you you want to be that safe person yeah. but like you like you've said that assumption <laughs> there's so much more mm -hmm. to that person sitting down in your chair in front of you mm -hmm. it is so layered mm -hmm. of how they're going to come to that conclusion about if they can talk with you or not and that was just really insightful that you shared, even as a minority to minority. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, that's still not, a, that assumption still shouldn't be made. Yeah. yeah. No. Um, I had the fortunate experience of a minority. I mean, as Korean Americans, we're like, quote unquote, top of the tier. Yeah. You know, we're like up there. And so I had uh, another Asian American who was not Korean American who was like, well, I don't know if I can talk to you about this because yeah. I know how you guys look upon my people. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, shoot. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm so, you know what I mean? So there is definitely yeah. an issue of safety in terms of, I mean, people know. People of color know yeah. where they fit. We know where we fit. On the spectrum. We totally Absolutely. know where we fit on, you know. And hopefully, hopefully everybody will strive to know where they fit on the spectrum right. um, because some people don't necessarily want to know where they are on the yeah. spectrum you yeah know, especially those i think in privilege yeah so what do you say to the person who's listening right now and saying no the spectrum doesn't exist we're all one race we're all the same we're all you know that type of mentality like what do you say to the realities that shouldn't exist but do yeah how do you help someone how can we help someone accept that like it doesn't matter what you want it doesn't matter if we want us all to sing kumbaya together and hold hands all these different cultures and ethnicities in the world it is not the reality the sociological reality so what do you say to the people who have so much resistance accepting that? They say, no, this isn't, this isn't here. Mm -hmm. um, I would say you are, have you, let me ask, I want to ask you, have you sat down to listen to that individual story? How much of your time have you given 
to just listen to people's story, right? Because I think people can feel quite, a lot of this stuff is fear. A lot of this stuff is fear of not knowing. Uh, and they use the, a lot of people can use the excuse of ignorance, right? But a lot of this isn't personal enough to them, right? Like, I feel even more a certain type of way about like Black Lives Matter because I have black lives in my life mm-hmm. that really matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. You know, e- even in terms of like how I interact with uh, this one, I'm going to be shooting myself in the foot, but like, you know, <laughs> with, the, with the LGBTQ plus community, right. It became a very different quality for me when I became really close friends with, um, uh, with somebody who is, is gay and his husband, you know, became a very different quality for me when you have people attached to these highly charged you know, issues. It's people at the end of the day and stories. So my question would be, well, how much have you taken time to listen to stories? Right? Like what? Um, and it's a discipline. I think a lot of, like, as a therapist, you think, oh, I I have the gift of listening. No. You still suck at listening, Heather. Right? So I think it's one of those things people think, I'm I'm a very good listener. Yeah, not, no, Mm -hmm. not really. That's a discipline that you're going to forever need to get better at Mm -hmm. and evolve in. Um, There's a difference between hearing and listening. (laughs) Yeah. You can hear hear somebody's story. And still not be listening to their story, yeah, or yeah. you can see somebody's story and still not listen to their story. So yes, it's yeah. You can think you're a good listener because you hear a lot. Yeah. But yeah, still be a very poor listener. Yep. Yeah. So that's what I've been asking, at least in my personal circles, where I've done a lot of these. I don't know, lack of back, lack of better words, battling. Um, I want to mirror how to sit in good discourse right like i'm i'm willing to listen to your story as much as it doesn't feel agreeable to me about how you talk about these issues or this people group so that when i ask of you to do the same uh for the quote-unquote opposing parties to you you would know what that looks like so i'm a bit more cynical (laughs) in that I've, I think I've met people where we've gotten into discussions where I've, you know, shared part of my story or stories and they still deny it. Mm. Um, yeah. So a part yeah. of me goes back to my Northeast culture. You do you and I do me. Mm. <laughs> you live in your reality. I live in my reality. But it's sad. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So for some people, I seriously have no hope. Yeah. In them. Yeah. For and them I think, to yeah. Up. And I think this is what I enjoy about like me and Sarah being in this together, right? Because we have different perspectives, regardless of like, oh, yeah, you guys are both Korean Americans, mental health practitioners with higher level ed degrees, right? There's a lot of on resume, we look similar. But pers- like experiences are different. So, so it's, it's really. I, I enjoy the difference, mm-hmm. right? I appreciate it, you mm-hmm. know, that there's differing a perspective. Um, and I think that's one place where we really miss 
listening is we don't appreciate different perspectives. If we can give space for different perspectives, different opinions, then this conversation can look very differently. Yeah. Like as a counselor in marriage counseling, one of the things you do is help people, help the couples hear a story and not have to agree with a story, but Mm -hmm. affirm that that's their story. Mm -hmm. And if we could do that in this conversation, Mm -hmm. it would be such a more productive conversation because no one's asking you to say that I understand that story or I have lived that story or I can logically understand how you got to that conclusion. Yeah. But to say you got to that conclusion logically, I don't know how or understand how, but I'm going to take that story, love you in that story, accept that story, and grieve with you in that story. Yeah. If we could do that, this conversation could be so different. Right. I remember early on in my journey of understanding my racism and understanding racism in general, I was sitting in a, um, like a cafe with a friend meeting and I saw this um, African-American man by himself come and sit down next to us and my friend was leaving. I felt like I should go talk to him after my friend left. I'm like, I don't want to do that. That's really uncomfortable. He doesn't know me. I don't know him. And after he left, my friend left, I went over and sat next to him. Like, just sat, like, just see, okay, can I sit next to you? And he, like, looks up to me, like, yeah, sure. And I started stumbling with my words and telling him, <laughs> like, I'm really sorry for like what's going on in, in our country here. It must be really scary for you or something like that. Yeah. He looks up at me and you're like, what? Uh, just very confused. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I started talking to him. We had a great conversation for like 45 minutes, an hour, just talking about race and hearing his story and his experience yeah. Yeah. of all the racist, a lot, some, many racist experiences of he's experienced and I just listened to him like I'm sorry mm-hmm. I'm sorry it happened and like after an hour 45 minutes I've never met this guy and he's just like I just wish we could have these conversations more mm-hmm. he's like I just wish that somebody would just he's like I just respect you for coming over and just talking to me he's like to be honest when you came over I was really scared mm-hmm. I didn't know what this white guy was coming over here to wow. talk to me about mm-hmm. and wow. he was bigger than me so it wasn't like I was intimidating him yeah physically but he said i was scared what was this white guy coming Mm -hmm. to talk to me about so i was scared like Mm -hmm. his body responded in fear he's like and then you started stumbling over your words i'm like oh shoot what's this what's this guy gonna do (laughs) and he's like but i'm really glad you got over those stumbling words and we had this conversation and because we can just uh talk about this this issue and to just like, he just wanted to be heard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He wasn't complaining. He wasn't arguing. He wasn't angry. He was just like, I asked him questions. And he shared. And he just, it was a really powerful experience for me. Like, people just want to be loved and heard yeah. and and validated. They don't need to be argued with. They don't need to, they didn't, he didn't need my validation. He wasn't looking for my validation. Mm-hmm. But the I was, because I was able to, just to listen to him yeah. and not argue with him. Like that we just could connect as humans yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and, and um, his trauma story. 
Yeah. Had no experiences like that. Like yeah. his. Yeah. He didn't have to give me all the the reasons why he was right. Yeah. He just shared his story. I took it at face value and yeah. it yeah. I think it was just human. Yeah. It was like a moment like he was fully seen. And um you know it wasn't owed to you. Like his story wasn't owed to you. But no. he had he had the ability to choose, right? He had the ability to choose to share. Mm-hmm. Which was a risk. A story, yeah. And because he didn't know me, that might have been yeah. less risky. Sure. You never know, right? But I was also pretty upfront that, I mean, I was apologizing to him and, yeah. and being very, so it was a, a brave thing for him to, to share because yeah. I wasn't necessarily safe. Yeah. I just want to jump in with, because I know you and we've talked about this a lot. You're not encouraging people to do that per se. <laughs> that was a very unique situation. Correct. And we we really value conversations like that with people we know who there's rapport and trust. And those are the people that we should be talking to. Our friends, our connections, our relatives, our we should be talking about this um, in the context of relationship I already had, but you never know. Like that was just your willingness. And if he was like, "Dude, I'm not talking to you," you'd have been like, "All right, I hope you have a good day." And you would have left. You wouldn't have started screaming at him like he owes you the story of his life because you're white and you want to know about racism. Yeah. Like that's not at all what Luke's communicating. Um, just the idea of story mattering and. I think something, how you guys are both talking about how Heather and Sarah, how you have different feelings about like talking about this with people. I just want to throw out there like there's no right way for a person of color to feel about these things. Mm -hmm. And like Heather said, the stories are not owed to us. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to know stories and, and the people close to you don't feel comfortable opening up about this, buy a book, listen to a podcast, listen to artists who sing about this. Like there is the most incredible resources available, tons of them for free. And we don't need to push someone to share their story mm-hmm. who isn't wanting to do that. I think that... Some people have a certain view of like, oh, well, people of color, they should all be out there on the streets and they should be activists and they should be fighting for justice and they should be like pouring out their lives and their hearts for this. No, they should live their life however they want to live their life. And this is the most exhausting topic oftentimes for a minority in America to engage with. And if they never want to talk to anyone about it, like they have all the right in the world to do that. And if they are energized and empowered and feel like driven to do so, that's also, I just think we, we don't realize as white people, like how much our white supremacy, our, our belief in that system plays into what we think people should even do. Mm-hmm. Sense of entitlement. Yes. Yes. I would completely agree with that, Lauren. Um, and I don't think I would probably do that again because I was very early on in, in my ignorance, but I think it was used. And I just well, also just want to give an example of just how to respond when somebody, when you read a book, when you listen to a song, when you hear a podcast, like the easiest thing to do is just sit with it. You don't have to approve it. You don't have to argue with it. You don't just, 
sit with that story and let it and like with our other episodes we just talked about just being curious like mm-hmm. what does this story stir up in my body what thoughts are stirred up in my mind what defenses or or arguments are being stirred up to disprove these these stories like would we just be curious as you're listening then the best way to listen is just to sit with it and not have to argue with it um, and another thing I was thinking of as you were talking about talking um, is they don't owe us anything. And when they don't give us what we feel entitled to have, again, be curious. Uh, I was with my brother this past year and we were talking in his backyard and an um, African-American man walked by and get in his car. And because I'm becoming more aware of uh, minorities' experiences around white people, I try to just turn to him, smile, and say hi. And as I did that, I realized that this man had a lose-lose situation. Mm. By me saying hi to him, it made him put in a position of obligation. He either had to go against his comfort, possibly, and say hi to me, or he could pretend like he didn't hear me and get in his car so he didn't have to, could avoid this awkward situation. But either way, if he did that, then he would be just jerk African-American that just doesn't want to talk to white, white people. And so we also need to be careful what we assume when we are interacting with people of, of color based on our story and how we're interpreting what, they, what we feel like they owe us to, and how we engage. Mm-hmm. That oftentimes, I think, white people engage with people of color thinking that they're giving them options when that's not true. Right. <laughs> you know, in that lose-lose situation, yeah. there's no option there. Yes. You know, and but they're but I'm giving you options. No. No, no, no. Yeah. You're forcing options. You're not understanding the power dynamic here. Yeah. You know, by the position that you're putting yeah. us in. Yeah, because there's a constant mathematic uh, calculation that's going on. Constant. In head, right? So it's like, okay, if I don't do this, <laughs> this is, uh, these are the repercussions. If I do this, so what is the cost-benefit analysis of me to engage or not, not engage, mm-hmm. blah, 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 X, Y, and Z? What's, right? Because now it's now survival mode of what's going to give me the quickest out to continue to protect ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Like like what exactly. Luke mentioned, right? Like this constant, well, you don't know. Like don't assume that... I am sharing this to you that now, okay, I am that. I, I am an ally, right? I'm like, an, and they perceive me as an ally. And that's, uh, I think what I was trying to communicate was like, you can't give yourself those labels. Let them arrive to it yes. in their minds. You don't, you don't come up with that. Like, I don't, I don't define I'm a safe person. That's up to all these other parties for them to determine on their own themselves whether i'm aware of it or not you know like i don't ascribe that label for me that's not how it works you know it's no different than i love how you guys are talking about like stories and it's like well no no no. don't don't just like that was a isolated like moment for luke don't think like this is what i'm gonna do so now i can learn from any and every person of color that's out there and like well tell me about your race trauma nah bro (laughs) like no we're not Right, and we e- would advise not to do that. Yeah, and even the stories that have been afforded to me, 
um, like during when all of this BLM uptick happened in 2020, like all of my Korean American friends wanted for me to tell them about the black experience. And I'm like, I'm not black number one, but because of my proximity, and I only have like about six or seven close black friends, right? So I'm not even like this well, I'm Korean, let's get real. I'm Korean American and I'm not the gatekeeper to their stories. I'm not gonna ha- let you have access to my friends. Like that's not that's not me being a safe person to right. them. Whether or not they've said that to me, I gotta figure out how do I keep my friends safe. Yeah. Right. And their stories safe. Yeah. I'm not gonna let you have access to it. So it's like, oh yeah, can I talk to blah 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 about no? There's plenty of of book, resources, books and resources yeah. that they've said. No, I am going to let you into my story here. I'm yeah. going to give you information. I'm going to let you, I'm going to educate you, but I've chosen that. Yeah. I wasn't put, I wasn't put in a position to have to do that. So those kinds of resources that you, if you have questions, you want to learn, you want to hear stories, go to the resources that are out there that somebody in their safety chose to create something. And pay them for it. And pay them for it. Yes. Because it. It was a. Uh, it was costly. Yeah. For them to write what they did or yeah. create what they created. Yes. I think. I think it's important to note that whatever color you are, each individual has a different experience yeah. in their life, and to know that every minority person, not minority group, but minority person, has a different story. Mm-hmm. That's so good. And I think we need to to remember that and not deny the individual experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the only way we can really educate ourselves yeah. to be in a relationship with that specific person. I would say the goal, I mean, your goal shouldn't be like the sense of arrival. Yeah. Even as a person of color myself, my goal is not okay. Yes, I'm. I'm putting the stake in the ground to be like I. I figured out every way to be safe for all other individuals of color. Right? Like, no. I hope to always have the posture of humility of like constantly learning. There's always yes. something for me to learn. There's always something for me to still be checked on. Yes. Yes. To be held accountable to. And that's okay. Yeah. Like, it's okay that we're learning. Like, it's embarrassing sometimes that we have, I have to learn. Yeah. That I say something stupid or say something in, ignorant. Yeah. But that's part of becoming a safe person. Yeah. And like you said, having a humility of, I'm in process. Yeah. If I have humility, then I can learn how not to make that same mistake again. And it, to be able to give yourself space to like, oh, I've done this, so now I can't learn anymore is putting yourself up for failure yeah. and to be offended or to make the same mistakes over. Right. But to have humility yeah. and to keep learning always. Yeah. I mean, that's how our, we're, our minds, our brains are designed, literally, is the neuroplasticity. Yeah. Right? You can teach an old dog new tricks you know our brains are 
There's hope. Yeah. In that way. Until yeah. the day we die, our brains are designed to change and morph and learn. So if we think for some reason we made it, then, oh, we're well, trouble. we're yeah. even going against the design of our brain. <laughs> right. So something's wrong there. Yeah. yeah. You know, if, oh, I'm good at this. No. Let's reach out. Yeah. yeah. Such good reminders. I mean, would we say that about any other area of life? Oh, well, I'm a counselor now. I've got it. I'm not going to do continuing ad. I'm not going to read any books. Yeah, I'm not going to talk to other counselors to learn about their experiences. I'm good. Or I'm married. Or I'm a parent. Or I'm this. Or I'm that. We're continually learning if, if we have a growth mindset in every area. So this is exactly the same. It's even more uh, nuanced than a lot of things. So even more room for <laughs> growth and, like you said, accountability and humility that there's so much space for that. So... Thank you for that reminder, and thank you so much. <laughs> I was just going to add, like, even as a counselor, I, I'm a learning, but I'm a counselor. You're a learning? As I'm learning, I'm still a counselor. I will never, never be a person of color, so I will always be learning even more so because I can't say, oh, I'm a counselor, and I've learned all there is to be a counselor. I'm white, and I'm always going to be white. So I will yes. always be learning what there's, it's like. There's certain fixed definitions, right? Yeah, so even in that sense, <laughs> yeah. it's very fixed. Of I can I can only learn from other people's stories. Yeah. Thank you guys for joining us, uh, Heather and Sarah. Thank you for your stories. Thank you for just the vulnerability of sharing, teaching, um, sitting with us. Just the gift of continue teaching us on this podcast but even in its friends mm-hmm. you guys have continued to teach uh, me and lauren about racism and how we can be more humble safer people and continue to learn for all of you listeners hope you just continue to listen uh, educate yourself uh, be humble and continue to remember that stories matter yours and everybody else's If Fail to Flourish has encouraged you on your emotional health journey, please share our content with social media and those that you love. It truly is such a privilege to watch what we've been creating be a help to so many. Also, we understand there are so many incredible opportunities for giving, but we would like to ask if you would consider a small monthly gift to help us keep producing content. There's actually a link in the description of every single episode for super easy giving, and we would so appreciate your consideration in this way. Please continue enjoying the podcast as it is created especially for you. While it is a joy to provide our podcast content as a source of life enrichment, please note that information shared is not intended to replace or contradict any professional therapy or medical advice.